Good afternoon, welcome to Eco Radio. And on 4ZZZ, you are listening to Eco Radio. You're with Eco Radio. You're with Eco Radio, 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 Peace and Environment Show, every Wednesday from 12 to 1 p.m. On your radio, 102.1 FM, also streaming and on demand, 4zzz.org.au, Eco Radio, Mulcher Culture. And on this week's Eco Radio, you're with me, Jeff Ebbs. Thank you to no apologies, as always. A joy to celebrate the babe of the week, Liz Fair. I didn't know a lot about Liz Fair before, but now I know a fair amount. Now, after new apologies and the news, we heard the Who. The Who were here on March the 17th at the Tivoli with their blend of hard rock, motorbikes and traditional instruments, including the uh, throat singing of out Mongolia, where they hail from. So one of the sort of increasingly common blends of traditional music and some sort of modern music, in that case almost uh, metal. Uh, The song was The Great Chinggis Khan. Interesting how dictators become hip sometime after they have wreaked havoc all over the world. I was in Latvia about three or four years ago studying robots at the Riga University and the hipster cafe in town was the Leningrad Cafe. And their icon was Vladimir sporting a Mohican. Latvia is strewn with uh, monuments and statues of Lenin from their days as uh, part of the Soviet Union. And even though the Russians are not particularly popular, well, the Latvians love their freedom, let's just put it that way. Um, Somehow Vladimir has become a hipster icon. Now, thinking about history today, November the 11th has significance in a a range of ways for Australians. Mainstream media is celebrating or commemorating the end of the First World War 106 years ago. As a young fella, I thought that we were starting to play down that kind of military aggrandizement. Anzac Day was a sort of ancient memory. There was a play called One Day of the Year that, uh, you know, talked about how sad and out of touch Anzac Day was, then how it enlivened it by forcing schools to fly the Australian flag and reinvigorate the memory of Australia's military glory or otherwise. So that's one way of looking at November the 11th. Um, The other way, of course, is the dismissal. Then came Remembrance Day. November the 11th, 1975. After meetings with both leaders, the Governor-General announced that he was dismissing Mr Whitlam and appointing Mr Fraser as caretaker Prime Minister until a general election decided the issue. An angry Mr Whitlam responded to his sacking in a speech on the steps of Parliament House. Well, may we say, God save the Queen. because nothing will save the Governor-General. The proclamation which you have just heard read by the Governor-General's official secretary was countersigned Malcolm Fraser.
undoubtedly go down in Australian history from Remembrance Day 1975 as Kerr's Now I know that's 45 years ago but I'm old enough for that still to raise the hairs on the back of my neck uh, an inglorious day in Australian politics um, This year the uh, dismissal is remembered by a couple of books um, written about the exchange of letters between the then Governor-General, Kerr, referred to in that clip from Gough Whitlam, um, and the Queen. So Paul Kelly, once editor of The Australian, has written a book exonerating the Queen and the palace for any involvement. And the professor who has fought to have those papers released by taking it all, taking the case all the way to the High Court, has written her book, uh, pointing out that the palace actually had a quite uh, active involvement in the process. Although, of course, uh, maintaining plausible deniability. So that's another way to remember November the 11th, the 11th, 11th, which is today. And, of course, long-term Echo Radio announcer Linda Rose, who was at the microphone last week, is celebrating her birthday. So that's another way to remember the 11th of the 11th. Mr. President, the late Marilyn Monroe. politics after having had a happy birthday sung to me in such a sweet, open way. So that was JFK, John F. Kennedy, joking about his retirement and the wholesome Marilyn Monroe, who, of course, committed suicide shortly after that event. Uh, in this week where the President of the United States gets a lot of news time. It's just worth celebrating our farewell to this little fella. Right, and then I see the disinfectant where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute. And is there a way we can do something like that uh, by injection inside or, or almost a cleaning? Because you see it gets on the lungs and it there's a tremendous number of the lungs, so it'd be interesting to check that. So that you're going to have to use medical doctors with. But it sounds it sounds interesting to me. So we'll see. But the whole concept of the light, the way it kills it in one minute, that's uh, that's pretty powerful. Uh, well, disinfectant and ultraviolet light wasn't enough to prevent the orange one from getting COVID-19. Let's hope it is farewell to him. There are rumbles that the orange one is working with Republican state governors to disrupt the electoral college count once the current court actions 
to stop the cow fail, which, as we heard in Brisbane Lions, they inevitably will. Uh, while we're saying farewells, this is my last gig as one of the rotating eco-radio presenters for now. I have a new book, Your Life, Your Planet, coming out next February, so, and I'm also doing some pretty intensive research on building sustainability into our social infrastructure. So I'm taking a back step from eco-radio for a while. Uh, now, you might um, remember that I have done that before, uh, 2017 on Monday at middays. I uh, ran a show called The Cage. Uh, before we hear about that, let's hear some station IDs. <laughs> He believed that there was some enchantment in the light. Shining a light on the local community. This is 4ZZZ. The Cage. The Cage is physically in the Triple Z FM studios in Brisbane, Australia. Great place to lock people up. Australia's an island continent as far from the North Atlantic as you can get. A colonial artefact that started life as a prison camp run by the British Navy. As a consequence, we've got refugees in gulags in the Coral Sea to teach them not to get into boats. We've got Indigenous kids in facilities where we tear gas them in their beds to teach them a lesson. And we routinely kill prisoners as part of our deaths in custody program to teach their friends a lesson. But... We encourage you to come enjoy our good fresh food, our great beaches and throw another prawn on the barbie because we're really nice to tourists. The Cage. Lock yourself in. So that was 2017, The Cage. This is Eco Radio and over the course of this year I've spoken to a number of people who are looking for ways to build a new post-carbon, post-growth economy. Uh, here's a a couple of um, steps along that, in that uh, direction, uh, starting with Dr. Eric Schmidt. As a doctor, I've experienced firsthand the difficulty of getting people to change their lifestyle. To wait, get more exercise, stop smoking, drink less, eat healthy. This is fairly simple stuff that people need to do for their own benefit. People cannot and will not do it. The vast bulk of the population struggles enormously to make sacrifices. And so is that just um, instant gratification? Is that that we just love yeah, pleasure? Yeah, and some people can do it. Um, yeah, and there's a bell curve with this and you've got extremes at, at both ends of the bell curve. But for the people at that dedicated forward-thinking end of the bell curve to be shouting at the rest of the bell curve, <laughs> come, and, come and think about the future like we do, then that won't be the thing that saves us. So there's Eric's view that it's no use for the woke among us yelling wake up at the self-satisfied. We have to find ways to lead change. Now, many people do that in different ways. Here's Maya Cricker talking about her uh, business producing a drink a, uh, from water kefir uh, and selling it in recyclable glass bottles, which she collects, washes and refills. Derived from the Apuntia cactus in the desert, where people at one point would have collected water from the desert in water pouches or in, in like animal skin pouches, and these granules formed, and they would then take them back and make a sugar syrup with them, and that they they sort of multiply over time. So that's where water kefir or cost comes from. But there are no each different set has a different set of bacteria attached to it. So water kefir from Australia is different to one that you might get in, in Europe as opposed to one you might get in Mexico. So since we spoke to uh, Maya uh, earlier this year, she has now sold her 50,000th bottle, 50,000th glass uh, jar, washed and recycled it. So it's a very interesting uh, story. And like all these snips, you can get the... Um, full story online by following the links from the Eco Radio Facebook page. Now, slight variation on the theme, here's Sabrina Chikori from the Brisbane Tool Library. 
um, when we hear about economic growth, we always hear about it in positive terms, you know, in the media, on the mainstream news outlet. But if we really look at how economic prosperity is intended in our society now, we uh, talk about economic prosperity just based on uh, GDP, the gross domestic index. You know, this index just uh, measure how our economy is growing all the time. But, you know, uh, wars, uh, health issues, accidents, and so on also grow the economy. So when we understand how the how we measure and um, economic success, we then you know are led to think that something is wrong with what we measure, right? So we we're pushing for a economic post-growth, economic degrowth framework where prosperity, social and ecological prosperity, is measured differently using different indexes. You know, imagine today, you know the well-being or prosperity of a nation is measured on how much we produce. But imagine if we could actually base the prosperity of a nation of how much free time we have. You know, so, um, and the problem, you know, I guess it's that we still blame a lot uh, consumers or people that they have to live 100% in a sustainable, you know, uh, way. But reality is that we need also a systemic change. You know, we need a contraction of the economy. We need and in order to have that, you know, downscaling of production and, con and consumption, we need to be able to redesign um, society's uh, path, you know. So we always say that we are recreating the commons at the true library because it's not about the things, but it's about the human relationship actually replacing the need of things. So recreating the commons and heading for degrowth. Now, interesting that Sabrina mentions uh, measuring and prosperity in terms of free time. Uh, for my sins, I've spent many of my uh, years working in uh, information technology, automating jobs, thinking that I was creating a uh, world in which we would have leisure and free time. Uh, looking back, I realised I was um, supporting a system that would prefer to make up jobs for us to keep the economic growth happening but that's another story now interesting thinking about that dilemma we can't consume our way out of the crisis it's not we can't expect as consumers to live sustainably systemic change is required so there is a fundamental uh, dilemma inherent in the topic of sustainability that pits it largely against capitalism now here is a surprising uh, supporter of that view who I interviewed quite a while ago. Now, it seems to me, I'd be interested in your view, that at some stage there has to be an end to economic growth. If we're going to share resources more equitably and we're going to sort of make do with finite resources, we have to achieve some sort of stability. I couldn't agree more, and I've been saying this for years, but that doesn't fit in with capitalism, unfortunately. And I don't know, I mean, I'm a capitalist, and I don't know how whether the whole thing is designed to go boom and bust. In other words, just, that's just part of nature. And uh, some people would be horrified when I say that. But the only system that's, that seems to have given us the economic growth that people want and the highest end of living is capitalism. But we all know that capitalism needs growth to survive. But in a finite word, you, world, you can't have growth. So one thing has got to collapse. And maybe that's because in nature it's always gone boom and bust, boom and bust, and maybe that's what will happen. It'll all self-correct because we'll all starve. And so that is the voice of Dick Smith, the conflicted Dick Smith reflecting on capitalism. Uh, interesting that way that some things turn full, full circle. Uh, in that interview, I also talked to Dick about his plan to create Australian Geographic as a non-growth company. He had, by that stage, sold it, upsetting a lot of people because he got money for the membership list, which had been a membership organisation that uh, he took over through the publishing of the magazine. But again, that's another story. Uh, now, Australian Geographic is the sponsor and the retail for my forthcoming book, Your Life, Your Planet. So in the interest of full disclosure, I'm just letting you know that. Of course, that wasn't on the horizon when I interviewed uh, Dick Smith. You are on the Zeds listening to Eco Radio. It is about 27 minutes past 12 o'clock on the 11th of the 11th, 2020. Uh, here is... 
Local lead Carl S. Williams with Bones.
The Book Merchant Jenkins, a general antiquarian bookstore specialising in sexuality, LGBTIQ+, ethnopharmacology, dance and performance, and contemporary, figurative and surreal art, is open seven days at 19 Doorknock Terrace, West End. 4ZZZ subscribers receive a 10% discount on all purchases in-store and online at thebookmerchantjenkins.com. The Book Merchant Jenkins, proud sub-discount outlet of 4ZZZ. Celebrate Nadoc Week with an afternoon of free music, dance and cultural activities at Redland Performing Arts Centre on Sunday, November 15. Featuring renowned musician Joe Gear, plus family-friendly activities and demonstrations, including dance workshops, cultural activities, and a bush tucker cooking demonstration. For more information, visit rpack.com.au. Redland Performing Arts Centre is a proud sponsor of Fortune Z. Radical Radio Collective. And on 4ZZZ Eco Radio, you're listening to me, Jeff Ebbs, and you were just listening to Carl S. Williams He's with his song Bones. He's on tour in far north Queensland right now. Uh, earlier in this show, we heard The Who, one of the last bands to play in Brisbane play, uh, before the lockdown, played at the Tivoli on the 17th of March. Well, Carl was one of the first people to play after the lockdown. He played at the zoo on Friday, September the 4th, um, a tour which he had to postpone over the course of the lockdown. is now restarted and he played at the Gold Coast last Friday. Before he played, he posted a poem. Hopefully I can do it justice by reading it out. America, you are the floating carcass of a whale. Once beautiful creature, eaten from within by sharks. It looks like you're swimming, but that's just the maggots in your belly, writhing orgiastically as they rot, rot, rot away your ideological core. America, this wouldn't be so bad if we weren't all riding on your back. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. 4ZZZ Radio has housed generations of independence for volunteer journalists, broadcasters, musicians and activists, amplifying the voice of marginalised communities in Brisbane since 1975. With your support, we can keep broadcasting local and independent artists and represent issues that matter in our community. Support independent radio today and become a Z subscriber at 4ZZZ.org.au forward slash support. So over the last half hour, we've heard a series of snips from people who've contributed to Eco Radio over the year. Eric Schultz, Maya Krike, Sabrina Chikori. Uh, other voices that I didn't replay include Helen Andrew from Spare Harvest, Claire Tracy on Recycled Plastic in Art, Ten Fingers and famous artist Sebastian Berto, uh, Dr Alice Payne on Recycled Textiles. So those interviews and um, their contributions form the backbone of the book Your Life, Your Planet, and those full interviews are available uh, through the links on the Eco Radio Facebook page. A couple of other links to things that I've mentioned in the show today going live, including the poem of Carl S. Williams that I uh, just read out. Um, now, I just wanted to look at that uh, dilemma that we've raised about the uh, conflict between our commercial activity, our daily lives and uh, sustainability. If we are going to enact a revolution, then we have to have a vision of where we're going. So one of the people who has been working with local community based on social enterprise to try and uh, bridge that gap, solve the horns of the dilemma, is Dr Ingrid Burkett. Uh, Dr. Burkett is a co-director at the UNIS Social Business Centre at Griffith Uni and previously a director of Learning and Systems Innovation at the Australian Centre for Social Innovation. Uh, what I'm going to play is an interview that she did with the uh, podcast Impact Boom, Tom Allen, who's also been associated with Griffith Uni and 
um, I had the pleasure of working with Tom and cur I'm currently working with Ingrid. So uh, first up, a little intro to Impact Boom. Welcome to impactboom.org. We search the globe to find the people, stories, ideas and inspiration to help you create maximum positive impact. Each week, Impact Boom brings you thought-provoking interviews with world-leading practitioners passionate about creating positive social change. These designers, social entrepreneurs, educators, innovators, thinkers and doers share their projects, initiatives, thoughts and insights on creating a better world. You can find all the stories, links and other great content at impactboom.org. So what do you believe are the fundamental ingredients necessary then when designing alongside communities or with communities to ensure that the outcomes produce positive social impact? Mm. I think they're, they're more intricate and probably um, less fancy than people believe they are. Mm. They're not particularly technical, but I would say things like curiosity. Curiosity is a very um, remarkably underplayed quality mm. that you know is fundamental to addressing some of these issues. Yeah. If we are not curious and we think we've already got all the answers, yeah. um, and we're not doggedly curious about yeah. creating change, then we're not going to be able to create that change. Yeah. Then you know things like tenacity. They are not simple mm. issues and we need to be tenacious yep. um, if we're going to create change. Um, and then the ability to listen and observe. They might seem like really simple things, but it always surprises me how difficult it actually is to sit down and really listen and observe what is happening in some of those places and how do we bridge the very different interpretations of mm. how to create change. Yeah, certainly, without putting our glasses on and seeing it through our lens, right? Absolutely, mm. absolutely. So, yeah, then I would say some of the technical things like, you know, the ability to actually facilitate people mm. and the ability to interpret data yeah. um, and know how to use data to create innovation and, and real change. Mm, yeah, some interesting qualities there. So what processes, tools or methodologies do you commonly use throughout your projects? So we, we have been very focused on human-centred design approaches yep. and that has been because really design is a, a framework that you can use to rigorously create tested change yep. relatively quickly mm and with people yep. so that's that's a really great framework as we have developed further we've come to recognize though that it's important to be a little bit um, method agnostic rather than dogmatic yeah about you know there's a lot of designers out there at the moment who are you know i'm a designer so i can change the world yeah. <laughs> um without recognizing that that actually requires a lot of other tools and methodologies mm. like ethnography yep. like um, the ability to really sit down and facilitate conversations yep. and dialogue which is a skill that say social workers or practitioners bring into mm. that picture yeah so yeah I think it's important to recognize the tools that are in um, that that can add but to see those in a broader landscape mm. rather than saying this discipline yep. is going to change the world so. that said I think the most important framework is that whole idea of let's try, test and learn. So, you know, having the capacity to prototype, for example, mm. is incredibly yeah. important because that enables us to really move into action quickly yeah. and to really test out what is going to work and to maintain that level of curiosity. Mm. Yeah, fantastic. So what do you believe then are the most common reasons that these types of projects fail? I would say that for me it's about that people spend too long in planning before they get into testing the assumptions. Yeah, yeah. Um, so if we spend all that time in planning, we could be planning something that actually is not going to work. Mm. So 
how do we move more quickly into that prototyping mindset where we actually test in practice yep. um, what the assumptions are that we're building into mm. processes. So I think that that is definitely one of the things that I see that needs to, to happen in order for those projects not to fail. Mm. And then the other one would be not involving people or not respecting the expertise that lived experience brings. Mm. Yep. So not involving the people who are actually living with the issues yep. and seeing those people as offering as much, if different, expertise mm. as professionals means that we are coming at these issues in a way that um, often is full of our own yep. lenses or our own assumptions yep. about what, what those issues mm. constitute. Yeah, yep, mm. certainly. So what advice then would you give to the budding social innovators out there <laughs> who are keen to contribute to tackling inequality in our communities? I mean, you've spoken about prototyping quickly, um, mm. about you know not putting our assumptions on on how we view things, about getting the experience of the people who are in a, a specific situation. Mm. Would you like to add anything else? Um, I think those are really the core, the core things. I mean, I would say, you know, get out there and try, but leave the ego at the door. We don't need a lot of new heroes in this space. Yep. What we need is people who are tenacious, um, people who have a really well-developed capacity to listen mm. and connect um, yep. people in. So I think those are the core skills. Um, whether you can learn those uh, in any other space than doing it, I'm yep. not sure. Mm. You can certainly hone your skills um, as a social innovator through formal learning, yep. but the best learning is on-the-job learning. Yep. Certainly, certainly.
triple Z. We think it's pretty good. It's pretty, 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 pretty good. And on four triple Z, you just heard Ancient Bloods, local Mianjin musical project. Uh, featuring Nadia Morrison, Michaela Stubbs, Cormac Finn, Will Probert and Loki Little with their song War from the album Where We Stand. A new one here on the Zeds. You're listening to Eco Radio and we're just catching up with some uh, an interview between Ingrid Burkett and Impact Boom about social enterprise. So how then have you seen the design and social innovation sector transform and change over the last five years or so? And where do you see it heading? Um, I think it's changed fundamentally in the last five years or so. Those of us who have been involved in social innovation in Australia in particular, um, for longer than that, were a, we were a fairly lonely crew and we knew most of the people who were also involved and interested in social innovation. Now, you know, that has spread and, and people all over the place are very interested and passionate mm-hmm. in innovation and learning um, and building capacity in that, which is great, but it also creates a few challenges because suddenly everybody is innovating and everybody's um, a designer everybody's a designer (laughs) and you know things like we we do a lot of co-design which is really just fancy word for collaborative design designing with people co-design has become you know the everything Mm. everyone is doing co-design and everything that involves any interaction with people is now called co-design yeah well, there's a very big difference between co-design and consultation. Mm, yeah. And so the fact that there's much more interest in innovation means that we have to be really clear about what it is that we mean by some of these terms, concepts, mm. practices and tools yeah. because otherwise we just end up with mush and if our aim is to really create positive change and positive impact, mm. then we need a degree of rigour in how we apply yep. these tools and methodologies. Mm, absolutely. I certainly agree. So if we move towards government now, mm. how do you believe government might most effectively engage communities in order to tackle these complex issues? Is it through co-design approaches? Yeah, I think definitely um, co-design has a very big role to play. Um, Government is critically important in this uh, process, both as a catalyst and a creator of the conditions Mm. for innovation, but they have to do this work in partnership. Um, I've seen lots of instances of government um, having the best intentions in the world, but because they're so tied Mm. to political imperatives, it is incredibly difficult for them to create innovation on their Mm. own Mm. um, without being in partnership with both communities and people who work alongside communities. Mm. So partnership in that innovation process for government is critical. Yeah, certainly. So are there any countries that you believe are doing this really well, that are really leading the charge when it comes to social innovation in general? And if you do think there are any other countries, what are they doing that we in Australia or other countries around the world can adopt? Certainly, I mean, social innovation has been around in places like the UK and Europe for a long, much longer, it has a much longer history than it does in Australia. And I think we can learn a lot from those countries. We can also learn what not to do. Mm. I think in the UK in particular, people got very caught up with, you know, the funding of government, using government funding to catalyse social innovation. And whilst that was good to start with, um, it also led to not very risky, not very creative, not very disruptive ways of thinking about systems Mm. because you were really dependent on, you know, that tap of funding being left on. Mm. When that got turned off, 
there was a lot of cynicism about um, how do we create innovative environments. So I would say we can learn from that. I mean, I think we should look closer to home. I've been mm. really inspired by a lot of things that are happening in New Zealand. Yep. And, you know, they have uh, been through some very interesting political times. Um, they're a small country, so, you know, you can see what's happening systemically yep. a lot more clearly. Yep. But there's also a fantastic spirit of social innovation and they've almost created curiosity at a cultural level mm. um, that I think can be inspiring. And their bicultural approach to uh, things like social innovation is also critically important for us to really think about when we think about, you know, some of the most tricky, most difficult mm. social innovation challenges we face yep. are actually about Aboriginal people mm -hmm. and our relationship with Aboriginal people yep. as non-Indigenous people. Mm. So learning from that bicultural approach yep. to social innovation, I think, is, is critical. Yeah, I think it's a fantastic insight there. For your dose of news, current affairs and analysis, tune in to 4ZZZ 102.1 FM, 12 to 1 p.m. daily. Only Human, Eco Radio, Paradigm Shift, Megahertz, and Brisbane Line, Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturday. For Triple Z 102.1 FM, People Powered Radio. And on People Powered Radio, you've been listening to me, Jeff Ebbs, summarizing a bunch of people who have spoken on Eco Radio over the year about different approaches to sustainability, uh, social enterprise. And last in that series, I just want to deal with the topic of finance and uh, having a chat to Robert Pekin about ORIC, the Organic Regenerative uh, Cooperative. Here's Robert now with the news piece introduced by Maddie and Mai back in 2017 in The Generator on the Cage. <laughs> The Generator. The Generator. The Generator News. The Generator. The Generator News. By selling off our country with inflated prices, it gives us a delusion that we're actually doing well. Energy matters. Living sustainably. A lifetime of war. Climate chaos. Local food action. The computer models used to predict climate chaos have not taken Arctic forest fires into account. A lifetime of war. Marine wash. Energy matters. Sustainable settlement. Local food. The generator. In the generator news for the week of the 10th of April 2017, investment cooperative for organic farmers launched. Hot on the heels of the announcement of new laws allowing start-up companies to seek investment via crowdsourcing, an investment vehicle for organic agriculture has been launched. The Organic and Restorative Investment Co-op, known as ORIC, will be launched in Melbourne next month. The aim of the co-op is to facilitate investment into agriculture that offers a fair price to farmers and nurtures the ecology that supports us all. The new crowdsourced equity funding laws allow individual investors to put up to $10,000 into a company raising less than $5 million. For pictures and background links to our sources, visit The Generator News on Facebook or the web. We're at a point in time where humanity is facing system failure at many, many levels. Um, and, uh, and one of them is the, the, uh, the concept of private property which, as we now know, you know, um, housing affordability, there's a, you know, a whole raft of things that, that, that have fallen out from this, this, this concept of private property, even in land, in, in land ownership. You know, we, we, you might do, three or four farmers might do a tremendous, tremendous job of um, restoring a, you know, a, a river bank or um, controlling erosion, a whole bunch of things. But there's a couple of other farmers that just don't care then the landscape doesn't really change fundamentally all that much. So we have to put land into common ownership so that uh, um, so it's, pres it's preserved for, for, um, for, for all time. And at the moment, food and agriculture is the biggest baddie on the planet. Um, energy, up till probably five or ten years ago, was the biggest baddie, but um, it's decoupled itself from 
um, natural systems. So now we're seeing a lot more renewable energy coming into the play. Yeah, well, I mean, technically speaking, a it's a pretty sector. simple thing to do, isn't it? Create energy. We've been burning rocks to do That's it, right. and right. now we're yes. capturing sunlight. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Um, whereas I mean, food and agriculture now contributes or, or will be 70% of all, um, you know, social and environmental and uh, carbon emissions in the next five or ten years because it, it has not decoupled itself. It's still intrinsically attached to fossil fuels, to carbon emissions, to um, in, you know, environmental degradation. The Great Barrier Reef is a great example. Between, it's also um, a very powerful way for farm. governments to control people too. So getting, ho- get, you know, getting yeah. control of yeah. the food production system and allowing uh, land to be treated as a right rather than a commodity are pretty uh, basic things. Good. Well, Robert, very exciting, but um, the clock it does not forgive, and so at that point <laughs> we are going to eject you from the cage and send you back to the big bad world of finance. <laughs> Thank you very much for coming in. The cage. Lock yourself in.